theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaquia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Dr. Joy. Good morning, Dr. Amy. How are you? I am really well. I'm going to be excited today to talk about digital literacy, but I'm also concerned about digital access. You know that we're talking about digital learning and digital access is something that we're both working from home today. So right. we're both working digitally, which is kind of new for us. Well, it's not even new. It doesn't feel new anymore. It feels normal that we're at home working. I'm excited about today's conversation because so many of us are working and learning from home in different spaces digitally, and that digital connection plays a huge part in how we're receiving information and how we're delivering information. So I'm really excited about this topic today. Let's also think about this, though. We make the mistake, I think, of saying our children are digital natives, and that's not the case. I thought they, that too. I was like, they are born knowing how to use technology. But now I've learned that that doesn't necessarily translate to the classroom and digital learning in the way we think of digital learning. So it doesn't translate, doesn't even translate easily they can't synthesize those skills very well because it's just two totally separate skills of being socially, digitally intelligent and being for the classroom digitally intelligent. So they're just two different things. And that's why our guest today is so valuable for this conversation. Uh, Jamika Anderson is a PhD student in the Curriculum and Instruction Urban Education Program at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Her research interest includes critical digital media literacy education, and she has immersed her professional development efforts in focusing on technology and equity among historically marginalized students. She received her master's degree in educational media with a focus on new media literacies at Appalachian State University. While serving as the founder and executive director of I Am Not the Media for 10 years, she has developed curriculum and award-winning community programs that empower youth through media literacy and media creation. Ms. Anderson also serves as a project manager for the National Association of Media Literacy Education, project fellow for the Cyber Citizenship Initiative with New America, 
And as an advisor for the American Library Association, Media Literacy in Libraries for Adult Audiences Initiative, Jamika is working on her PhD degree, but prior to pursuing this degree, she's worked as a library outreach coordinator, among other adventures that we can talk about during the podcast. She's been uh, featured on Wired Magazine and in the recently released Trust Me documentary in fall 2020. We have so much to talk about. Hi, I'm so glad to join you all. Hi, Jamika. You know, we were talking about this bio, which is very long. I said, Dr. Amy, read it all. She is phenomenal. You could have cut some of that. (laughs) I don't know how you do it. So even before we get into this digital learning, which we were talking about earlier, how do you do it? I'm just interested in your adopt candidate and you have all these other things going on. And some of these things I'm sure you're very passionate about. How are you managing this? I believe in the spirit of collaboration and it really helps feed productivity so that if you have passion projects that you want to do, collaboration is key. You can't do all these things on your own. Everything that I do from my nonprofit to other projects I work on and serving on teams and as an advisor, these are all things that I work in collaborative spaces and I don't take it on by myself. It allows me to extend myself in other areas and other passion projects that I really want to pursue. So that's what I'm going to say in a nutshell. It's the spirit of collaboration. It allows you to be able to exponentially spread your wings as far as you can. With your Yeah, team. I wish I had that going on when I worked on my doctorate degree. And at the time, my children, I think, were like three and five years old. They were not good collaborators. Amy was a career changer as well. And we do amazing things under pressure. And you are certainly doing amazing things. Even when it comes to writing, majority of things, I do not write on my own. I was presented to do a book two years ago with ALA. I'm like, who wants to come on with me? You know, so that is fascinating. Anytime yes. I have something like that, I just call Amy. Amy's an English teacher. <laughs> but I can give you some content, Amy, if you write it. That's- Absolutely. I love writing collaboration. That's a way to get it done. So we were talking about digital learning and we're all in our digital spaces now. I mean, we're having this conversation digitally. I'm working from home today. Amy's working from home today. And this has become normal for us. You know, I don't know about that word new normal anymore, but this is feels normal and we're doing what we have to do to make it work. But there are some challenges. So today we're going to talk about that. So tell us, Jamika, what is digital learning? And also, we're going to focus really on digitally limited learners. But first, what is digital learning? For educators, I would say digital learning is a pedagogical practice that employs technology and tools that are available online and incorporates new media. When I say new media, I'm speaking of online learning spaces that are There we go with that word again, collaborative, that actually implement tools that are multimodal and text that is multimodal, video, audio, visual imagery. It all encompasses this space of digital learning. It's participatory in practice as well. And so tell us who are the digitally limited learners? Digitally limited learners are learners that are introduced to digital learning, but they have limited experiences with engaging in digital technology and digital media 
in academic and sophisticated ways. It may be a child or a adult who may have a smartphone device and you may think, oh, they're digitally savvy because they can use social media apps, but they have never utilized digital technology and digital media in academic, professional, and I'm using the term sophisticated, but what does that mean, right? right. But this kind of formalized way that's structured, that creates this experience that is limited that they are not accustomed to when it comes to entering spaces that require them to translate their current knowledge of utilizing digital media into this academic way of using digital media. So I shouldn't be upset with my mother who's on Facebook every day, but on Tuesdays and Sundays when it's time for her to join her church sessions, she can't seem to figure it out on Zoom. And that is absolutely correct. And it could be, it's two factors. And I know we're going to dive into this more, but the first thing someone may think is that that's a motivation. She's just not joining because she doesn't feel like it, right? But it could be more things in play that we have not considered when it comes to this group of digitally limited learners, which is the ability. Maybe they don't have the knowledge or understand how to navigate in these spaces in a professional academic way where they feel motivated. Yeah, it's her fear. So she depends on me as her IT person because it's really fearful for her because that is a a new and different space for her. Definitely. Joy and I were talking about the term digital natives, because we toss that around like people are born with a digital device and super savvy. Just like you said, we have kids who are on Snapchat or a number of other sites and they're learning things from YouTube, how to do different things, news on TikTok. But tell us about some assumptions that are being made about students' digital capabilities. We all assume that this generation, because they are born with access, whether that's, you know, as early as in preschool years, they're on tablet devices, watching videos and engaging with digital devices in their hands and at their fingertips on a continuous basis. I think we assume that that means that that translates to actually having digital skills. That's not the case. Access does not translate to skills. And so it it creates the opportunity to to explore and to learn skills, but it doesn't mean just because you have access that you have the skills to navigate, to understand how to utilize this digital technology in different ways and to engage in different spaces with technology. And so that is a key assumption that I think a lot of us witnessed when COVID happened, but honestly, a lot of research had been taking place over the last decade that has really shown that digital natives, there's a study that was done with digital natives. Mm-hmm having the same amount of skills as their instructors and their teachers who were not digital natives, understanding how to utilize online tools to create, to engage in in intellectual content online, to be critical consumers online. And so we know for sure that those skills are not taught just because you have access to a device. It's not acquired just because you have that access. Before we get into some more conversation, if you could just explain to us What do you mean in the reading about what is critical digital media? Yes. So critical digital media, the the main word right there is that critical piece, right? So much that has been done in the field of literacy, 
critical literacy. A lot of that work has been inspired by Paulo Freire. What critical digital media is, is basically understanding how to utilize digital technology in a way that involves conscious thinking and exploration and evaluating and analyzing content and analyzing the content that you create and the content that's being consumed. And so when you're teaching a student to be critical, when they're engaging with media, you're teaching them to one, understand that all media is constructed. And then you're also teaching them to explore diversity, whose voices are included. Is this content political? Are there hidden messages in the content? And so that's what it looks like on the critical consumer side, but the critical digital media side, where we're empowering students to create. They're thinking about the content that they're creating. They're thinking about the representations and uh, of what they're doing and how they're navigating in the space and, and collaborating and conversing with others. So it's this conscious level of thinking of who you are as the creator and consumer and who you are in the world and with others as we're all connected in this digital space. Let's talk about media. You founded <laughs> I Am Not The Media. Yes. What does this title mean and what does the company do? Yes. So I created an organization called I Am Not the Media. It's been 11 years now since we launched it to the public. It started out as a grassroots organization in Charlotte. I literally was in my mid-20s. And at that time, I didn't know I was doing media literacy, but I had been doing so much programming work for so long, ever since I consider myself a teen. Like as soon as I adventured out and started working at the age of 18, I was working with teens. <laughs> and I think what was a constant trend that I was seeing was how teens were so influenced by media, by the way they talked by the way they responded, by the clothes and everything, the style, the culture, everything was influenced by media. And so I was really <laughs> empowered to think about how I had been influenced as well by the media and engage in conversations with youth. Didn't know that I was doing media literacy at that time. I just knew I was creating this dialogic space for us to explore how media was impacting our lives. That then led to this organization that I started later on in my 20s. And the main premise of it was to empower teens to be critical consumers of media, but to also embrace their individuality and uniqueness. And so I used to get interviewed by media outlets and they would say, what do you mean I am not the media? And I'm like, it's just as simple as saying, I am not Dr. Amy. I am not Dr. Joy. I'm Jamika. And that's okay. And it's okay. And we all can be okay that we're different. That was kind of the main premise of when I started the organization. But over time, it has evolved into more extensive programming that's been grounded in research and very strategic in practice. Um, we've expanded a lot of our programming to explore social media as we talk about how social media influences mental health and also misinformation, disinformation, all of that type of content. Before it was more so just looking at media under an umbrella, you know, with music and videos and that kind of content. Well, congratulations on all your accomplishments. I think you're awesome. The meat of this conversation, we're going to focus on the strategies, some strategies that you collaborated with your, here's that collaboration with some of your colleagues and you develop strategies for engaging digital limited learners. I love the model that you and your colleagues put together where you address these six factors under the themes of personal, social, and structural. Can you talk about that framework broadly? Because we got some specific questions for you. 
Yes, definitely. So many years ago, I had took a professional development course. In this course, it was teaching about the six sources of influence with building accountability, right, as a professional. And it introduced a concept or conceptual framework that um, looked at motivation versus ability. And so that has always stuck with me even in all of the facets of of work that I do, is looking at accountability in this realm of motivation, ability, and how they're interconnected. And so when COVID-19 happened, I was working with um, another educator in my PhD program, and we were exploring some of the challenges that we were experiencing with the students. And I think that conversation immediately came into play where it was like, the students are not getting on, what's going on? And I think everyone initially thought, oh, They just think this is a break, right? And no one really considered that it was more than that. With this educator, his his actual classroom and school that he served was in a low-income community. The school is considered a high-poverty concentrated school. When I say that, the majority of the population, 90% and more, qualify for free and reduced lunch. So with that, we know that there's challenges there with the digital divide and access, that this wasn't just a break for them. It was deeper, and we wanted to explore that. What we did is, as we began began to really flush through the experiences that the kids were having and looking at possible solutions, I said, hey, let's think about this in a different way. And I presented this kind of concept. Is it a motivation thing or is it an ability thing? And so we laid out the chart of looking at the six sources of influence um, model that was actually crafted by Patterson, Grinney, Maxfield and all. And we basically plugged in the personal, social and structural influences that were impacting students um, when it came to digital access and also being able to engage with digital learning. The way this model is set up is you have the category motivation and ability, and you look at the personal challenges across motivation ability. You look at the social challenges across motivation and ability, and then the structural challenges that exist with motivation and ability. So when we talk about what does that look like with digital learning, the first thing to ask with motivation on the personal level is, do they want to engage in online learning? Do they want to be online? And if you see that, hey, that really isn't the issue, let's look at it more as an inability factor. Do they know how to use the technology? Do they understand technological terms? You're telling them to go online, go to Gmail, submit an assignment, upload an attachment. They don't know what is an attachment. What are these terms? I can't understand. And like you said, Dr. Joy, it then creates this fear or then it then impacts their ability and motivation. The second tier, which you would have to look at is social. So when we talk about social motivation, what are the kids seeing around them? Are they seeing parents that engage with digital media in academic, informative, and professional ways? I know that my daughter is so used and accustomed to seeing me set up my workspace at home. I have my own workspace. I have my materials laid out. My laptop is up. My ring light is up. And guess what? She practices those same habits because she's modeling those behaviors in her social environment. So that social motivation, what does that look like with engaging in digital learning for other kids? When we talk about a on a social level? Do they actually have support structures in the home or outside of school to support any technological issues that they may have? Once again, think about you even as an adult. I'm sure if you've been on technology, you've had glitches, crashes, things not happen, and you say, you know what, forget it. It affected your motivation, right? But it was because of the, the ability that, you know, you had that challenge, but no one was there to help support you. 
Because if you had that actual support structure to help you navigate through those technological issues, now you have the social ability to actually be confident in that space. So think about this. If you didn't have access to IT at school, would there be some challenges? That is supporting your ability on a social level. If you have a parent in the home that knows how to navigate technology, they're proficient, that's going to impact the students as well with those support structures. Lastly, structural. When we say structural, once again, motivation and ability impacts that structural component of what digitally limited learners can do with motivation. Is there any benefits to students engaging online or are there consequences? So what does that look like in a space in a classroom? Are they encouraged? Are they rewarded? Are they empowered to be online? What does that look like? And when we talk about that, is it a collaborative space where they can talk about their experiences or share fun photos? Or what are, what are those awards that make them want to be in that space, right? And then ability. Do they have the quality Wi-Fi speed and internet service? And I think for a lot of us, we looked at that access is if that one barrier is fixed, then that will solve the issues. But what about the social and then the personal, right? When we talk about this model, it helps us understand that there's layers to this onion. Right, right. And it needs to be a hierarchy because one of the things you just talked about is access. If you don't have access, none of the other things matter. We had this conversation before about my nephew. When the pandemic hit in March, he went from March to June accessing school on his cell phone. Yes. Because he didn't have access to Wi-Fi. He didn't have access to a computer until we got a computer for him. That impacted not only his motivation, but that also impacted his ability to keep up. It affected him on so many different levels and it affected his esteem as well. Definitely. Because it became obvious who had what at home, right? It became very obvious to the other students. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And and, and a lot of research has shown that students that come from more affluent backgrounds, their parents have the knowledge of how to navigate and support their students that are in school with technology and learning. And so just think about when COVID happened and remote learning happened, how much of a learning gap that may have created from those that are the digital haves and the digital have nots beyond just saying, okay, we're going to give you a laptop device to take home. Maybe they're not accessing that device and using that device for many reasons. They don't have anyone in the home to help them understand how to utilize it. Those basic digital literacy skills, how to turn on the device. When my daughter first got her device with remote learning, there was so many things she had to do with passwords and so many components that even I was going through this list like, hold on, we had glitches. And I consider myself pretty technological proficient. I was even having challenges with supporting her because she needed the support. What does that look like for someone that doesn't have those kind of support structures in the home beyond just the access and the devices? Let's talk about this framework through the lens of the onset of the pandemic. So at the onset, whose responsibility was it to prepare students to use technology? I mean, do you think that teachers receive the support even now to be competent themselves and then competent enough to teach the students? And then there's the home, the social factors as well. Whose responsibility was it? What it showed was that there had been a drop. Uh, someone had- I don't, I know you want to say it was a mess. It was a mess. It was all over the place. <laughs> and the reason why I can't say it's the teacher's responsibility is because the teacher's 
had not been fully trained with technology. Even the, the educator I work with, the reason we were working together because they were utilizing me as a community partner to help support them as an educator because they had not received a lot of support and training and professional development to even support digital learning. And so a lot of educators do not have actually, there's been research, a lot of educators report they're not competent, nor do they feel competent to <laughs> engage in critical digital learning or any kind of digital learning in that matter beyond basic, you know, this is take this test on this website, but actually the active engaging learning practices, they do not feel confident with doing. That's because it had not been invested in by a lot of school systems and districts to provide that professional training for those educators. We also see that a lot of teacher pre-service programs in universities still are not equipping those teachers that are about to come out and become novice teachers in our schools. They're still not getting and acquiring the digital learning that they need so they, that they can engage and teach students. And so there's challenges there. What can be done? Who's responsible? I think that one, policy has to happen. Um, we're just now starting to see a lot of technology standards get implemented in school mm -hmm. And before they were putting that responsibility on school media coordinators, media coordinators in the schools. And guess what? A lot of schools, especially in high poverty communities, don't have media coordinators in their school. We're still at a loss from what happened when the economy crashed back in 2010, a lot of massive mm -hmm. in our school districts that many schools are functioning without a librarian in their school. So when you have states that are putting that responsibility on that, guess what? If they're not there, is technology being a main issue? Is it being a focus to be taught? So policy issues have to happen. School districts have to put this at the forefront because now we're seeing that access is in our world today considered a utility just as much as having power and water, running water. And also it is a very vital component and skill set that's needed to pursue higher education because you're going to engage in learning or with learning management. Mm -hmm and then professionally. And so if you don't have those skills, it prevents social mobility, social capital with youth that comes from high poverty communities that do not know how to engage and learn and participate in these online spaces where they have to get information about their health, their safety, their opportunities for them to learn and to go off to college. And so it's very vital for us to relook at policy especially when it comes to what's being taught in our schools and the professional opportunities with our teachers. I totally agree. You know, when this pandemic hit, I was actually teaching college freshmen at the time. I consider myself technological competent, mm -hmm. but digital media was different. But I still said, I got this. But for me, I think that the affective domain is equally as important as the cognitive. For me to be a good teacher, I need motivation. I need feedback. I see this as this goes both ways. I'm not just teaching. I want you to learn. And if you're not responding to me, then I don't know that you're learning. It's like a comedian mm -hmm. talking to themselves. And, you, and I've heard that over and over. Comedians found it very difficult to go digital because no one's laughing. I needed that energy from the students to be a good teacher. I want to talk about motivation. Do they want to engage in learning online? And I think that part of that begins with turning the cameras on. And there was so much debate about turning the cameras on. 
some of it was about equity and uh, you don't want to see what's in the children's home. You don't want anyone to feel self-conscious, but we have filters. And at the beginning, those filters may not have been available, but filters are available now so that you can't see my background. And I think it starts with turning the camera on. So from a student perspective, what does it mean for a student to keep their camera off? And from a teacher perspective, what does that mean when there's a lack of expression and interaction for that teacher? Well, I will say with students keeping their camera off, they were entering the digital learning space in the ways in which that they have entered the digital space. And so when I say that, a lot of times when youth are engaging in digital media, whether that's through social media apps, they're on there just as a watcher and a viewer. In their mind, that's participating. I'm participating when I'm scrolling through my screen and I'm seeing what you post and what you're saying and just watching. That's how I'm accustomed to engaging in the digital space. Mm. What do you mean now I have to be visual and be available visually? I think that that was one of the one of the challenges that we were seeing is that they communicate in the way and they were engaging in the way that they were accustomed to, whether that was, I'll just rather use the chat. I don't want to be visually seen. I just want to watch and drop in the chat. Guess what? That's the way it's been done. That's the way we've been doing it, right? And so now it's like, hold on, let's shift the game. We want you to participate the way we're saying you should, even though those parameters had never been established for you because you're not accustomed to learning in the digital space. I think that that was the first thing that we saw. You're absolutely right. There have been so many modifications that have supported individuals to be present and available. I tell you this one thing. There's still many adults that don't turn their cameras on even today. I know, I know. And I'm like, what is happening here? And I have been on the other end as the instructor. Once again, with I Am Not the Media, my organization, we do outreach programs. So people book us to come do media literacy workshops. When I'm coming into a classroom and everyone's screen is black and I cannot see anyone's face at all. This was the norm for me, especially with working with high schools. I would come into a Zoom and all the screens are black. And then I'm talking and I'm asking questions and no one responds. So I had to adjust on my end because once again, the school's like, these are the parameters. They're not required to turn. And I'm trying to figure out how to engage and navigate in this space. And so I said, okay, I'm gonna have to adapt my instructional style in this space with the parameters. Now, okay, I'm gonna have to adapt and modify how I teach and engage. So I started creating nonverbal ways of engaging with students. I started having to use the polls. I started and having a jam board. And, and, and it's like, okay, I see you writing. I'm talking, I'm verbal. They're not, right? So I think for just that first go around, for me as an instructor, I had to learn how to adapt and teach and engage with them in the way that they were accustomed to. That was the only way that I could get responses. Because if I asked for someone to speak, they were not going to do it. But when I say, can you drop it in the chat? Can you show me an emoji? Can you pop up a picture right now? How are you feeling today? How did y'all feel about this, um, this lesson? Drop a picture. They would do that because guess what? They're accustomed to posting pictures. They're accustomed to putting comments. So I had to adapt my teaching styles in the ways in which they were, although they're digital natives, they were digitally limited learners, the way that they are accustomed to navigating in this digital space. That's what I experienced and what we saw in that first year. 
everyone's starting to build their confidence in this digital space now, kind of like just going back to your mom with going to the church. I think once she gets comfortable in that space, that camera will come on and she'll be ready to talk. She's learned how to get her background filter up. I just learned that you can do um, makeup filters. She can put her makeup on if she wanted. Yeah, as long as she has me as her IT person. (laughs) And we got to build this digital confidence and competence together. Until that happens, we have to figure out what's the in-between. How do we meet them so that we don't lose them? You know, how do we keep them there? And if that right now for me to keep you there, because you did step one was you got on. How do I keep you there? We can inch together a little further in this journey. We are speaking to Jamika Anderson, the founder and director of I Am Not the Media a PhD student in curriculum and instruction and urban education and offering some fantastic strategies for meeting students where they are. What are some of the biggest education technology challenges you have seen for parents at home, for guardians in helping their students stay engaged? One of the biggest challenges has been with not only supporting the digitally limited learners, but also their parents. Because if a child is a digitally limited learner, their parent is a digitally limited learner. And so it's almost as if you have to teach and empower both the student and the parent together, especially when you're engaging in remote learning, because you need that parent to help be that co-teacher and co-support as you're engaging with learning with that student. And so some of the challenges that I know we experienced when COVID first happened was especially parents that speak other languages and they weren't able to really engage. And so we had to create some strategies and solutions. How do we reach them and get them engaged and get them to learn how to navigate online so they can help support their student as well? Some of those strategies that we had to do was when we're giving out content online, making sure you're utilizing Google Translate. Also, when you're posting how-to videos, making sure the parents have access to those how-to videos and also making sure those videos are translated as well. Another error that we experience is that when technology crashes, What do you do when they don't have those support structures in the home? And so when you are working with digitally limited learners, it's always great to have a backup. It takes more planning when you're doing remote learning. I think some people, let's just get on camera, we're going to learn. No, you're going to have to plan that through to be effective. So you need to know your lesson in advance. You need to have your lesson written out and you need to have backup copies for your lesson. So when you do teach your lesson, parents and your families need to have access to backup materials and copies. One of the things that we had to do when COVID happened is before school or new lessons start is, hey, we have supplies, we have materials that are needed that we need you to come pick up at the school or we can drop off. We would actually drop off some of those materials because we understood that there were some challenges with certain families with coming to the school. And we would drop off those materials on their front step, on their front porch, if there were some parents that couldn't, families that couldn't come. And so making sure they have the materials, making sure they have printouts for your lessons and all of those things available just in case they're not able because you don't want to lose the child and lose the family from being able to support them if technology crashes if they're not able to access this video and it's just not playing and you can't figure out what's going on I don't know why your video is not playing all the other videos are playing with everybody else Yours is a plan. I don't know why. So this is what we're going to do. You have a transcript where you have a backup of what that video is about, what it talks about. 
and then they can still engage in the learning. Making sure you really think through your lesson in a way that even if there is a glitch or an error that happens with technology, there's a backup for that activity or that exercise that parents can support their students with. Absolutely right, because we used to have to come up with backups. What if the copy machine isn't working? You don't remember those days, Jamika. You're too young for that. I remember the copy machine. If the copy machine is not working. Going back to uh, the framework under structural, and it says, is there any benefits to students engaging online or consequences? When you say consequences, what are we speaking? Are we speaking negatively? I can think of lots of benefits. What would you consider some of the consequences in that framework? One of the main consequences is, is it a safe space? Is there bullying happening online? Oh, yeah. Bullying happening even in the school space online as kids are engaging. I know when I first started doing workshops with I'm Not the Media with classrooms online, we used to deal with a lot of student bombers that just came into the Zoom and just started cursing everyone out. What's happening in that space that may make someone not want to be in that space? So these are things that have to be considered. Structural policies, things need to be in place to support healthy participation for kids to even want to be in that space. Those are some examples. Let's talk about accountability. We talked about cameras on and off. We talked about engagement and having those resources available for students, whether it's in the classroom or if they're learning remotely, digitally. So how might teachers and parents help students build accountability in these digital spaces, either in the classroom, because they want to do technology implementation, of course, there too, but also remotely? Definitely. Number one, I would say, and this has been the premise of all things that I do with digitally digitally limited learners, is finding out what those students' interests are. Because there's benefits to having access to technology online and, and being in the online space is the exposure. One of the ways that you can empower them to be accountable is to, one, connect with their interests. I would say find ways to motivate them to want to be in the space And that would be, what are you interested in? I I just started, I think you mentioned in the bio, a film camp. Are kids interested in movies and film? and Or are they interested in certain cultures or music or hip hop? And figure out how to incorporate that in their learning experience online. I did a podcast program and I've been doing sessions with teachers on how to incorporate podcasting in their classroom practices. Instead of doing a regular review online, do a podcast activity where you put the kids into groups and then they're actually doing their own segment on some of the information that they've learned and they're applying it through their podcast. You could let the podcast replace the test, you know? And so figuring out ways that kids like to engage, what do they like to, what are they into? What are they passionate about? And you have that access because you're in this online space to do a lot of different things with that. I would say that's one of the main components, but also putting together collaborative experiences for them where you can encourage participation in the home and that helps build the accountability. So one example is an activity that we did where the kids had to create a video, but their parents had to um, be involved in that and recording the video, helping them record it and piece, you know, put the video together. This is a science classroom that I was working with. So they had to do a jello earthquake. So they had to pick up all the supplies, of course, in advance from the school or we dropped them off. 
And then the parents had to help them with their Jello earthquake because once they made it and it cooked it on the stove, they recorded that process, but then they had to do this experience where they were shaking the earthquake and seeing what was going to happen with this earthquake. I'm not the science teacher. I was the digital media person to help support. And so they needed someone to record them while they were engaging in this activity. And so the parents knew what their role was and the kids knew what their role was. And so it created this collaborative experience where they were able to create media and put online and capture what they were doing and you know what they learned from it. Figuring out ways to get the parents involved assign them a specific role. Like you are holding the camera, you are taking the picture of your student and then they're going to take that picture and they're going to upload it. So creating this collaborative type of experience for them, that's going to help them feel accountable and it's going to also help them feel supported at home. So Jamika, because this is the world in which you live in, as we move hopefully out of this pandemic and we're in the classroom, what is your hope that teachers actually hang on to? and learn to grow and embrace? Yes, I think that my hope is, even if you're in a school where you don't have a lot of support in professional development opportunities, that you seek them for yourself. So many opportunities available right now, especially with webinars, online conferences, where you can learn different ways that you can engage your students in digital learning. Another hope that I have is that You don't give up even when the glitches happen and even when there's obstacles with the students. Don't give up. Find other ways, adapt, move and look at this as you're learning together. You and your students are learning together to how to navigate this digital space, um, how to learn in this digital space. You're you're learning how to teach and they're learning how to learn in this digital space. So understand you're doing this together. And if you don't give up, they won't give up. Additionally, I would say explore, do research, what has been done. There's so many tools available right now. I actually am the project manager for this initiative called Cyber Citizenship. And we have a compository of different resources that educators can utilize for free. Please take advantage of those type of online initiatives that have tools and videos and activities available for you that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Just go look it up. OER Commons is a large platform for educators to access open education resources that you can use in your classroom that are digital and online. There's also tools like Nearpod. Oh my gosh, I love Nearpod. Nearpod is for educators to incorporate digital learning in your space. It's already established and set up for you where you can do games on there and you can do virtual tours. Just know that there's resources available for you. You and look those up and incorporate those. Just start start with that and pursue professional development opportunities. I have so much going through my mind right now as far as my learning, what I want to share with our listeners, making sure that these resources are available in the show notes. This has been amazing and you are amazing. And I look forward to following your journey and staying connected with what you're doing. Thank you so much. We will definitely add in the show notes some of those resources that you listed. I think I love Nearpod also. I love Nearpod. Thank you. Thank you. This was so so very helpful. I hope so. I really do. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation 
and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy. <laughs>